Our younger single people, to a great degree, are affected by the culture. They have to be. They live in the culture. And the culture's assumptions are you need to find a soulmate that doesn't want to change you and it's perfect for you and you have great sexual chemistry and you live happily ever after. And on the other hand, the culture is also saying marriage is really hard and everybody gets divorced and most people are unhappy. And both of those are wrong. It's The culture is both too negative and too romantic about marriage. And I try to point that out in the book, that the biblical view is much more balanced. Hello and welcome to the Great Stories Podcast. I'm Charles Morris. And that was the voice of an old friend of mine, the late Dr. Tim Keller. I knew him and his wife, Kathy, when we all lived together in Philadelphia. We were in the same church long before I became the president speaker of Haven Ministries and certainly before he was called to plant a church in the middle of Manhattan. Well, today I want to share with you a conversation I had with Tim and Kathy shortly after they published a book, The Meaning of Marriage. It's the launching pad for this conversation that I hope will help you, whether you're already married, widowed, divorced, or single, to learn what marriage really means from the Lord's perspective and how that can apply to two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation. I know you'll enjoy this conversation from the Haven Archives So let's get started. Welcome to Haven Today, coming to you from the West Coast, California, and we're going to the East Coast in Manhattan. And on the line with us, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller. Tim's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. The Kellers, both of you together, thank you for joining me on the program. Here we are. It's our privilege, Charles. Thanks. (laughs) Hey, we're talking about marriage and the meaning of marriage. That's a book that you both have out right now, facing the complexities of commitment with the wisdom of God. And I gotta say, for Janet and me, thank you very, very much. We've both read the book separately, but we are now reading the book together as a couple, and it's blessing us, and I hope that uh, our chat together for a little bit will bless others as well. Let me just mention, Tim, you pastor a, a large church in New York City, you guys packed up from Philadelphia. That's where we first knew you guys. That's right. And uh, you did this series on on marriage a few years later. But the church you pastored then, and I assume still today, is predominantly made up of singles. Why do a marriage series? Well, we were probably 80 or even 90% single when I originally did the, uh, the series of sermons in 1991. And today we're still majority single, at least 60%. It's a, a little different as the church has grown. And actually people tend to stay in the city now instead of moving out when they get married. And that's good. However, the reason to do this was to give people a vision for marriage. Because I'd say some singles are too desirous for marriage, believe it or not. That is, they feel like they're going to be incomplete. Uh, they never be happy unless they're married. And you have to show that that marriage is penultimate, uh, that it is ultimately a pointer to our uh, union with Christ, and that not everybody is married and being single is a, actually a good state, and Jesus and Paul were, mar- were, were single. On the other hand, you have singles who are too afraid of marriage, and it's partly because they, they're afraid of it, they don't understand it. And there actually are singles who are too, um, I guess I could say, they, they don't know how to go about looking for a marriage partner because they don't really know what marriage is about either. So unless you get a, mm-hmm. give them a vision for marriage that's very theologically rich, rightly related to Christ, 
realistic about the fact it's two sinners being brought together. The people aren't realistic enough to to find a good marriage partner or to or they or they're too afraid or they're too desirous and unhappy if they're not married. So it really was crucial to give single people a biblical view of marriage if they were even going to be a good single and if they're going to be single well, I mean. Actually, in some ways, it's more important for single people to read a book on marriage than married people because the damage has already been done. Mm. Not that it's not important for married people. We want everyone to read the book. But single people, I think, in some ways are poised to benefit from it in a uh, way that married couples may be finding themselves doing damage control. You guys lived in a nice suburban house. I've had dinner in that house that you were in in suburban Philadelphia. And you had three boys. To move to Manhattan and pastor a church, this was not an easy thing you guys were looking at doing, was it? Uh, Tim was very intrigued by the idea, and as he kept coming up to New York, meeting more people and seeing the need, I could see his desire to come up here growing and growing, whereas... I was, frankly, very dismissive, like, well, this is obviously outside the bounds of reality to take my three boys, which I have to admit in public were the victims of indifferent parenting. They were wild, little, Mm. crazy guys. In fact, my mother was against us moving here to New York. She said in the side of the first week, all of your children will be in gangs. And they were 11, <laughs> 9, and 5 at the time, but she had a very high view of their ability to transgress. So I did not see any way forward for us to take our family to New York. But uh, it was actually interesting that you bring that up. It was a, uh, a real time of Tim and I trying to put into principles the Ephesians 5 teaching that is the backbone of this book on marriage. And it didn't really come down to Tim imposing his desires on me. In fact, he tried to do the opposite. He said, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And I said, oh, no, buddy, you are not putting this on me. You have to, the buck stops with you. And if the decision to go is going to be made, it's going to be made by you. But meanwhile, I had to get my heart right with God because ultimately my Mm. My fears were all resting in things that I couldn't control, like who would their friends be, where would they go to school, where can they play soccer. I I couldn't visualize a future Mm. in the city, and it had to be. It was actually at a communion service at New Life Church where I really felt God saying to me, and Presbyterians don't often feel God saying things to them, but I will say (laughs) I really did, that after all that he has done for me, if he wanted me to go live in Calcutta on the streets in a cardboard box, it wouldn't be too much to ask. And that was the end of my resistance to going to New York. I said, okay. I tell you, I have to say, I've never loved living anywhere more. It's been the best thing mm. for our family ever. That's a whole other discussion about why raising your kids in the city is a great thing. Absolutely. Tim, what's marriage like now in a place like New York City? You know, here we are in an election year, and just a few weeks ago, the same-sex marriage issue came up. That's going to be prominently displayed. I'm not asking you to talk about that, but what about just the role of marriage between men and women? And how do you see this operating in, in your church and then when you go around the country and speak? Well, the book's obviously laying out a, a biblical view of marriage, but the first chapter puts it into social into context. That is. We have a culture in which there's a lot of skepticism about marriage. I think, to me, the the most telling statistic is that 
30 or 40 years ago, 75 to 80 percent of all adults were married, and now it's just about 50 percent, a huge change. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. plenty of people live together now, which didn't, before 1960, hardly happened at all, apart from marriage, because of fear of marriage and and feeling like I'm not going to get the right person and being skeptical about it. So, um, yes, there's great skepticism about marriage and fear of it. And it's generally, what I try to point out in the book, it's largely because people have lost uh, the more traditional Christian understanding of what marriage is. And when you say, how has it affected people in my church? Our younger single people, to a great degree, are affected by the culture. They have to be. They live in the culture. Uh, You Mm -hmm. go out in the rain, even with an umbrella, you get wet. And you live in this culture, even if you go to a good church, it it tends, the the culture's assumptions tend to sink in. And the culture's assumptions are, you need to find a soulmate that doesn't want to change you, and it's perfect for you, and you have great sexual chemistry, and you live happily ever after. And on the other hand, the culture's also saying, marriage is really hard, and everybody gets divorced, and most people are unhappy. And both of those are wrong. It's The culture's both too negative and too romantic about marriage and I try to point that out in the book that the biblical view is much more balanced Mm. you're not trying to give people a how to follow these steps I guess I read the book the meaning of marriage Mm -hmm. and I see grace I see Christ I see you know another wedding another marriage taking place there Uh, ultimately I see you going beyond just if you'll just follow these few steps everything will turn out normal, yeah, whatever normal book, is, or perfect. Yes. The book actually is giving you a vision, a theological, biblical vision for marriage, which I still think, in the long run, is the most practical thing. No, yes. it does not, like some books, sit down and say, here's 10 communication jammers. Here's 10 ways, you know, husband and wife's communication can get messed up and do this survey and see which ones you use, and then here's how to change. That's, by the way, great and I've got books like that, and I've used them on myself and on other right. people in counseling. But I didn't mm-hmm. think that that was probably the essence of the problem. I thought the essence of the problem was the vision itself of marriage. So it's more of a it's more of a gospel-based, theological, biblical vision of what marriage is. Yeah. Let's go back to going to New York City, living in Manhattan, trying to raise three young children. Tim, this could not, in planning a church in Manhattan, have been easy on your marriage. No, I, it wasn't, but I really do think Kathy should speak to that. Well, we had two fears, or maybe I should put it, I had two fears when we were moving here. One was Tim's already inclined to work too many hours and uh, be a perfectionist. He's admitted to that in public. I'm not confessing what? his sins for him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said to him, you know, when we get to New York, the the quality of the the invitations, it's not going to be, please preach my, um, at my wedding or speak at my retreat. It's going to be, will you open the General Assembly with prayer? Would you have tea with the ambassador from Iran? And how do you say no to those things? You're going to have so mm-hmm. much trouble mm-hmm. keeping your schedule under control. And Tim said to me, well, for the first three, three and a half years of planning a church, yes, it's off the scale. I mean, it's all hands on deck. And it was. Our whole family participated. Tim preached. I was the whole mm. staff. The kids even Mm -hmm. went and bought all the groceries for hospitality, all the cookies. They loved that, walking into the grocery store with a credit card and saying, (laughs) buy every cookie in sight. Um, But three and a half years sort of came and went, and the schedule was still maxed out at 100 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And 
I had spent my life as a wife nagging about the hours, the hours, the hours until I was just background noise. So um, mm. one of the things I, I tried to think of was how do I really get Tim's attention to say that you're really going to be damaging our marriage if you keep up damaging our family, not just the marriage, the boys too, if you just keep up this schedule. How do I actually break through and get myself heard after having been a drip, drip, drip nagger for so long? Mm. You really mm. lose your voice. So one day, and I've told this story, it's in the book. <laughs> one day when Tim was working in the back where his study is, I took our wedding china out onto our cement balcony with a hammer and started breaking pieces. And of course he heard this shattering noise and came rushing in thinking I had lost my mind that mm. I must be in a, either a rage or a, a psychotic break or something like that. And I was actually quite calm. I did this in cold blood after a lot of thought. <laughs> and I said to Tim when he came out, what are you, what are you doing, what are you doing? I said, sweetheart, you are breaking our marriage in a more mm profound way than I'm breaking anything and we have got to talk and I just couldn't think of any other way to get your attention and mm. we did have a talk after that and now the punchline to the whole <laughs> story is that I later told Tim that the only pieces that I was breaking were the saucers that no longer had matching cups I wasn't really uh, attacking the good stuff but I nevertheless see. that I, I refer to that to other women as having a godly tantrum that it has to be done with a lot of prayer and a lot of thought. And you really, really have to reserve it for a sort of once in a marriage, a once mm. in a marriage issue. Maybe never in a marriage, but you can't do it every week or every month or every five years even. You, you have to wait till there's something that is so desperately important that you're willing to have your godly tantrum as a helpmate, as a way to help my husband see what was going wrong that he couldn't see. Well, and, and people in ministry suffer from this. Uh, Tim, I'm a workaholic, too. I'm in ministry, too. I don't push 100 hours, but I'm, I'm working some weeks in that direction. Did you find as a result of this loud noise, the breaking of the china, was that a point where you guys were able to kind of recommit, rebond, and, and, and realize that, yes, God's called you to be a pastor, but God's also called you to be a husband as well as a father. No, I don't want to, listen, that was a brilliant move on Kathy's part, and it had a <laughs> profound, and it had a profound impact on me. But I, I don't think it would be right or honest to say that that was a big turning point. Before that, I worked this many hours, and never after that that I worked too much. No, it was part of a process by which I've, mm -hmm. uh, and it's still a process going on. I think the important thing, it's good to be single in the ministry, but it's also good to be married and the reason why it's mm. good to be married is that marriage does uh, force you to put some boundaries on your work and makes you see work is not everything it's much yes. I think it's actually a lot harder if you're single in ministry you know actually see work as everything there is at all everything there is mm. Mm. Kathy you have anything uh, to add to that well I'm, I respect Tim because he has that moment may have been an eye-opening moment, but it's been a hard slog for him. He has had to say no to a lot of really, really important things, and it's hard for him mm. to do it, and yet he has been doing it. So mm. I, I see him making the effort to change and, and being committed to the effort to change. It's, he's not being uh, casual or lighthearted about it. So that that's, goes mm. a long way. Mm. 
And he's getting right. better. He really is. <laughs> great, great. I, I don't know if Janet would say that to me or not. But all right, Tim, you guys have written this book, The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. You talk about marriage and people today having kind of an unrealistic concept of marriage and 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 two ways that can go can you kind of explain that to us yeah i call it pessimistic idealism which sounds very strange and it is on the one hand in our culture there's this idea that you're not getting involved in a marriage for two people to work together to love each other and change each other no no you're looking for someone who is physically almost perfect brings a lot of wealth is a person who accepts you just as you are, does not change you. And therefore, mm-hmm. you're looking for almost a person with like no maintenance, uh, sort of a low-maintenance person, a person doesn't need much and will not demand much from you. So you're looking <laughs> for this perfect person. It's, it's impossible, which means then you go out there and you look for people and you become very pessimistic because you can never find anybody. Uh, you mm-hmm. get into a relationship, you find you fight or you disagree or the person doesn't like this or that about you or you get your at first physically attracted and then the person changes a little bit and you start to lose that. And that's one of the reasons why I call it pessimistic idealism. They're looking for a perfect person who doesn't mm. need any work. And as a result, because of that idealism, they eventually become pessimistic about, about uh, ever really getting married. Can mm. we call it unrealistic mm. pessimistic idealism because everyone knows that they themselves aren't perfect but you're looking for somebody else who is. So sure. unrealistic on top of everything else. Well, we don't always like to think of ourselves that way, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it is true, yeah. We really know what we're like, but we don't like to think of ourselves as what we're like, but we don't want to see a spouse in, in, in that light, I guess. Nor do we want a spouse to put their finger on something that's wrong with us and ask us to change it. Mm. Kathy, you sound like Janet at this point, so that's, that's good. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Let's talk about just what is marriage, and, th- and then we're going to look at the scripture because you do that in your book on marriage. What is marriage in the first place? Well, I think the essence of marriage, which you find in both, both the uh, Genesis 2.24 which is the main Old Testament text, and Ephesians 5, which quotes Genesis 2.24, <laughs> is that marriage is a covenant. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the word cleave, that old word cleave means to embrace. It is a covenantal word. It's not just they love each other. They really commit to each other in every way, legally, personally. They give up their independence. And become one flesh means one new unit. It's not, again, it's not just talking about emotional or physical oneness. It's talking about complete oneness. And that's the essence of what Mm. a marriage is. If you Mm. haven't done that, you're not married. Then I guess uh, we might as well just go in and talk about Ephesians 5 a little bit. One one of the things that I so appreciate, and you've given me permission to do this, I've borrowed that sermon series that this book comes out of that you've preached before, and we've had the the thoughts here on, on this radio program, Haven Today. You point out in the book how Paul, in writing this, before he gets to the commands to wives, the commands to husbands, that there is this idea of being filled with the Spirit at the same time. Go into that a little bit with me. Right. That's the chapter called The Power uh, for Marriage. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And what we often forget, because it's such a famous text, is we forget its context. And the context is Paul has just made a list of the signs of spirit-filledness. And he says, be filled with the Spirit, and then he makes a list of what those the characteristics are of a Spirit-filled person. The last one is verse 21, submit to one another. And he's, he's actually saying that all Spirit-filled people lose their pride and self-centeredness, and they learn to serve each other. So he's talking very, very generally at that point, but he's talking about all Christians. Then suddenly he boots off of that to verse 22, and then he says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives. And so what he's actually doing is he's showing how spirit-filledness works itself out in marriage. But and then he goes further, actually, and talks about how it works in children and in right. employers yes. and That's the rest right. of that. Yes. Right, but the main point of, of the chapter, and I think the main point is that Paul is assuming uh, that you believe the gospel, the spirit has come into your life, and has started to change the innate self-centeredness that is in your heart. It's uh, repentance mm-hmm. brings humility. The repentance of the gospel brings humility. Also, the love of Christ lifts you up so you're not so insecure. And the cancer of every marriage, that, that is to say the worst thing that eats out the middle of every marriage, is self-centeredness. That's the, mm. that's the biggest problem. And without the spirit-filledness, which is essentially applying the gospel to your heart all the time, you can't overcome that spirit, that self-centeredness, and it destroys your marriage. And so that's the power for marriage. That also means that you should not attempt marriage with someone who's not a spirit-filled person, that marriage Mm. between someone who's a Christian and not a Christian will never work because the center of your life is not the center of their life, and the resources that you can bring of repentance and forgiveness to a marriage are only partially there, and you need them fully there. So that's Mm. by implication, but I think true. Well, looking at Ephesians 5 also, Kathy, let, let me ask you this. You, you also went to seminary. You also studied Greek. You get to a passage where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. How in the context of being a pastor's wife, and you, of course, are heavily involved in your church as well, too, how does that work its way out? I know you both seek to serve the scriptures and seek to serve the Lord. How does that work in this me-ness that we live in today? Well, I think first you have to understand how Jesus redefined both submission. In, In Philippians 2, you see him laying aside his glory and submitting to his Father, and how he also redefined leadership and authority when he washes his disciples' feet and says, you know, you have to be like this, not the way the world is where they lord it over one another, but, you know, the greatest must be the servant. So once submission is redefined so that it's biblical, and once headship and leadership is redefined so that it's servant leadership, there's nothing to fear. I was not raised in a, in a Christian home. I was not raised um, as a person who was innately enjoying playing second fiddle to anyone. So... Mm. I don't think submission (laughs) teaches that you are a second-class citizen or playing second fiddle. You are in the same position as the second person of the Trinity when he laid aside his glory. And Mm. if submission doesn't injure Mm. him, it can't Mm -hmm. do me any harm either. (laughs) Um, Iron sharpens iron. If friends are supposed to be like that, how much more so spouses? And so with Tim and I, there's, there's a lot of iron sharpening iron, but... There's many a time where I'll say, glad I'm not the one that has to make the decision here. I'm glad I'm not the one that has to, to be the authority here. And I, 
I do um, find myself very able to, to take rest in the fact that I am the person that is letting him be the leader. Mm. Tim, you probably saw this more in your first church in Hopewell, Virginia, many, many, too many years ago, more than maybe you see in New York City at Redeemer Church. But there are Christians who believe that the scripture teaches that the husband, the man is to, may I use the word, lord it over his wife. Uh, his word is final. It, it's less of a, of a partnership. It's more top-down management, military, whatever. You want to talk about that with me for a minute? Well, sure. There's two things you can say to that. One is uh, right here in Ephesians 5, immediately after saying, wife, submit to your husband, immediately after that it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and sacrifice his life for her. If I'm supposed to be willing to die for my wife, that can't mean that uh, I just enjoy making the decisions for her. I mean, what I often say, I don't mm -hmm. even know if it's in the book, but I say if your wife, if you're the head of the home and your wife wants a car and you need to buy a car and she wants a red car and you want a blue car, according to what I read in Ephesians 5, you need to let her have the red car. I mean, if you mm. have to die for her, surely you ought to be able to give her the car color she wants. You should never, ever overrule her just because you're in charge. You're supposed to be serving her, and therefore the very idea of servant leadership, servant headship, has got to mean you don't lord it over. It says that Jesus did not come to please himself, but to give his life as a ransom. And so yes. he never was the guy that said, I'm the head of the household, I'm the head of the church, I get to hold the remote, I get to pick where we're going on vacation, I get to make all the decisions. And, you know, what did uh, Archie Bunker say to Edith all the time? <laughs> Quench yourself, Edith. Quench. Stifle thyself. Stifle yourself, yes. Stifle That's, that's right. That's right. Stifle and that was myself. not in Manhattan either, was it? <laughs> no, no, it, it was It was in Astoria. It was, it was in New York <laughs> It was said in Astoria. That's true. That, that's, that's right. Kathy, you talk about dancing. The dance of the, the dance Trinity. The of the Trinity, yes. Yeah. Well, Tim talks I, a lot about it, too. Talk to me about this dance uh, that's in marriage, but then the dance of the Trinity. Well, the dance in marriage is supposed to be reflective of the dance of the Trinity. In fact, I'm, I would go so far as to say that God invented, one of the purposes, not the only, but one of the purposes God invented marriage was so that he would have a an analogy ready to hand whenever he wanted to reveal some truth about the inner working of the life of the Trinity where each party defers to the other and each party wants to lift the other one up and each party wants to serve the other one. You see that in Philippians 2 again where Jesus empties himself and yet the Father lifts him up with a name that's higher than every other name and you see it in John 17, where Jesus mm -hmm. is praying, give mm -hmm. me the glory that I had with you, and but I'm mm. giving my life. It's the, the metaphor of a dance is because dance is poetic movement. And when you are not marching in lockstep, everybody being all in the same uniform, all, everybody looking the same direction, but dancing, somebody has to dance backwards. And so that's far more beautiful in my mind to see a dance than to see troops marching all in line uh, mm. looking the same way looking the same as one another all the whole unisex thing mm. very, and if you've very, not very ever good. read it the ending of C.S. Lewis's book Paralandra where the protagonist sees all the glory 
of the heavens dancing before the Lord, all the moments of history, all the people. Peter Kreft says that when he lies dying, that will be where his mind goes. And I hope I have the self-possession to have my mind go there too, because it's one of the best things I can think of. Mm, wow, that's good. Spoken from somebody who actually corresponded with uh, C.S. <laughs> Lewis as a little girl. Yes. We've had you on this program talking about that's that before. Right. That's right. Hey, you guys have been married a few decades. Well, give us some advice. People are listening who are married, who would like to be married. Pastor, a pastor's wife. You've written a book, The Meaning of Marriage. Give some advice. Buy the book. <laughs> no. Are we allowed to say that? We put everything we know into that. Charles, in a, in a sermon very recently, uh, Kathy was in the auditorium, and I looked at her and, um, and said to everybody, I said, unless my wife loves me, loves Jesus more than me, and unless the love relationship with Christ is, is more important than her relationship with me, she'll never love me well. And mm. the, the vice is completely versa. I mm. have to, it's exactly, go, it goes, you know, reverse. And that is, and by the way, that's how you will also be single well. If you, if you in a sense, put more stock in a non-existent yet romantic future, if that's yes. the thing that keeps you going, instead of your relationship with Christ, or if you think your marriage is what's going to keep you going instead of your relationship with Christ, you'll, you'll crush the other person with your expectations. You'll, in a sense, make the other person a savior. And if you're a single mm. person, you'll actually make the non-existent future dream you know, soulmate your savior. And uh, it doesn't work. It breaks down. Christ is ready there, and he always loves you. And if you, you can always find him, and your spouse will never be there for you in the same way that Christ will be. And, we, we say that looking at each other in the eye and having a marriage far better than we deserve. John mm. Newton, I think, is the one who said that the biggest danger of a happy marriage is idolatry, that you make the other mm. person mm. into your savior. And anything that makes them look shaky, they get sick, or they're in a grumpy mood, shakes you much too much because all your hopes are pinned on that person propping you up rather than both of you looking mm. to Christ and his spousal love. Mm. If married people don't live that in front of single people, then single people are not going to have the um, courage to actually believe it for themselves. Mm. We need to pray. Tim, do you mind leading us in prayer? Our Father, very, very grateful. We are so grateful to you that you have um, given us the gift of marriage it's based on your relationship with, with us through Christ. But we're also so grateful that regardless of whether we're in a good marriage, a difficult, weak marriage, regardless of whether we're single having been married, regardless of whether we are single hoping to be married, we, we know that we can have your spousal love through Jesus Christ, and that is the basis of our life. We pray that you would help us to make that very true. We, we're saying that, we write it, we nod when we say it to each other. It's another thing to make it real. And with only with your Holy Spirit's help can the, the love of Jesus Christ be real enough to make us live well as single people or as married people. And we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. Hey. It's been great having you both on the program. Kathy Keller, thank you for joining me on Haven today. Charles, thank you so much for having us. And Tim Keller, 
thank you for opening yourself up a little bit and sharing with us here on the program. I'm glad to be here, Charles. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories. I'm also thankful that Tim and Kathy Keller were able to spend that time with me several years ago. If you want to hear more conversations like this, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also visit haventoday.org and sign up for our weekly email and discover additional great episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories. Great Stories.